You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We're back for our sixth and final lecture. And having covered topics regarding nature, and then more properly human nature and Aristotle's De Anima, and moved on to specific considerations of human knowledge and the relationship between soul and body on at least two separate occasions, we are going to end with the topic of human freedom. And if these other topics that we've discussed thus far have been highly controversial, and if Aquinas' position on them has been much misunderstood, in the modern and contemporary world, then those things can be said even more truly of the account of human freedom that Aquinas gives. And I want to begin by considering the relationship between nature and person in Aquinas, because this is intimately connected to his view of human freedom. And it's also useful to begin in this way, because it provides a kind of point of contact with most modern discussion of human freedom. That is, as I noted in the opening lecture on the forgetfulness of soul, there isn't an awful lot of talk among the modern philosophers about human nature as this composite unity of soul and body. What there is an awful lot of talk of, at least with some of them, is the human person, the notion of the person. And the person, to put it rather simply, is thought by many modern philosophers to capture better the answer to the question, who, rather than nature, which seems to answer to the question, what. So the idea is here that there's a kind of severing of nature and person, and that nature is the realm of things that is studied by natural science, and it properly answers the question, what this thing is. But when we get to humans, we need to move away from nature, according to these thinkers, and focus on the notion of the person, because that answers the question, who. And according to them, if we don't ask the question and answer the question, who, and we simply stay with the question, what, then we seem to have reduced human beings to mere animals, that there's nothing higher in human beings than what we find in animals and indeed other objects in the world that can be discussed in terms of the question, what. Now, one of the most important background teachings to this is that of Immanuel Kant, perhaps the greatest of the German and most influential of the German philosophers, and the sort of culminating philosopher of the Enlightenment. And Kant is working at the culmination of all this remarkable success that modern science, and especially Newtonian mechanics, has had. And the view of science that Kant inherits is science studies what? It studies things that can be expressed in terms of laws of motion, it studies the mechanical interaction of physical bodies. And that interaction can be expressed in terms of mathematical laws. And hence, what we seem to have in this realm of science is determinism. If the only limitation on our explanation and prediction of the interaction of physical bodies is the limitation of information, that is, we might not be able to predict what's going to happen because we simply don't yet have enough information about the antecedent conditions. But if we had all that, we could predict with certainty what would happen. 
then there seems to be no room for freedom in this world of nature. This is the study of nature. Nature is merely the mechanical interaction of physical bodies described in terms of laws. It's a deterministic world where if we have all the information about the antecedent conditions, we can predict what's going to happen in the course of things. Now obviously, this view of science leaves no room for what most ordinary folk, and perhaps all ordinary folk, and even most philosophers, take to be fundamentally true of the human condition and of human beings, that we're free, that we are not absolutely determined by antecedent physical causes to do all that we do. And so what Kant wanted to do, he accepted the claims of Newtonian mechanics to be able to explain the natural world. What he attempted to do was to carve out in this natural world or above this natural world a space for freedom. So he wanted to defend a realm of freedom. And so he argues that human beings are indeed free. What's his evidence for this? Well, he gives two related sorts of arguments. The first kind of argument he gives is that I simply experience or at least must acknowledge my freedom in every act of deliberation that I engage in. That is, I can't seriously deliberate about whether I ought to do A or B or C or any number of possibilities put before me. But I can't seriously go about deliberating unless I am implicitly assuming that I'm free. That is, it's in my power to bring about A or B, and it is my freedom of choice that leads me to A or to B. So in my very act of deliberating and acting, I seem to presuppose what he calls this fact of freedom, that I can't engage seriously in deliberation without implicitly assuming that. Right? If I were to deny that and think about it while I was deliberating, I would be undermining my very deliberation. Right? I would be making a sort of mockery of my deliberation. And so if I'm seriously deliberating, I am implicitly assuming my own freedom. And that implicit assumption cannot be rejected if I am to go on living as a human being. The second argument that Kant gives is that according to Newtonian mechanics, my body should be under the sway of these physical mechanical causes. And indeed, Kant wants to say that my instincts, my passions are in a way under the sway of this causal necessity. And yet, I find myself obliged by a moral law that I discover within me that leads me to discern in situations of moral dilemmas or conflicts that there is an opposition between my instincts and my passions, which would go the way of satisfying my pleasures and my happiness, and what the moral law, the categorical imperative, as he calls it, demands of me. And for Kant, this recognition that I find myself under a law, a law that calls me to act in situations of duty against whatever inclinations I might have that run contrary to that duty, that this is, as it were, a kind of awakening to my free capacity, this part of me that is free and properly human, properly a person. So for Kant, there is this realm of freedom. And this realm of freedom is separate from and can come into conflict with the bodily realm of mechanical necessity. So Kant defends this freedom. And in part, as I just mentioned, this has to do with this moral law that I find myself under. Now, we need to be careful here because Kant does not argue that this moral law is given by God or that it's given by nature or that it's given by society. In fact, I give it to myself, according to Kant. I am autonomous. I am a self-ruler. And each individual, insofar 
as he understands himself to be free, is also an originator of this law and subject to it simultaneously. And we recognize the common humanity of persons in recognizing each individual's autonomy. Autonomy is a big word in political theory and law today, and we owe an awful lot of that to Kant, that Kant is really the source of this conception of the human person as autonomous, as self-ruled, as self-legislating. And much of our contemporary talk of rights is recognizing the autonomy of individuals flows right out of Kant. Kant thinks that if I were to construe this law or to accept a law from some independent authority, society, nature, God, I would no longer be autonomous. I would be operating heteronomously. This is self-law or self-rule, and this is ruled by another. And it is a great banner of the Enlightenment that each individual ought to become self-legislating, self-ruling, dare to think for oneself and live for oneself. And this heteronomy is taken to be a fundamental evasion of my own responsibility and dignity as a person. And for Kant, I'm not just an isolated individual in this. I recognize every other rational individual as being autonomous, as experiencing him or herself as a center, a source of freedom in this way. And so I have to respect that in others. And I'm respecting in other persons their dignity. Kant will say, everything else in the universe has a price. Everything else in the universe can be a means, an instrument to some other good. Only persons have dignity. And only persons must be treated as ends and not merely as means. That everything else in the universe can be treated as an instrument to some other good that I can use to get some other good. But only persons deserve respect as ends in themselves. So we have here a rather strong argument on behalf of the distinction between person and nature. Person capturing the who, capturing the realm of freedom, capturing the realm of autonomy and of dignity. We want to put Aquinas' view of the person on the board and then to compare it briefly with that of Kant. Now, the first interesting thing that we notice about Aquinas' view of the person, it occurs in an explicitly theological context. It occurs in the Summa Theologiae when he is discussing the trinity of persons in God. Right? So he has to there pause to speak about what a person is before he starts to say that there are persons, namely three, in God. And he takes from Boethius the definition of the person as an individual substance of a rational nature. A person is always an individual. It's not some universal nature or something. It's always an individual. Right? But there are lots of individuals. In fact, everything that exists, every concretely existing thing, as we've already argued or observed, is a singular, is an individual. So Aquinas adds to the fact, following Boethius, that individual substance of a specific sort, of a rational nature. So other animals are not persons. They're individual substances of an animal nature, etc. But person is an individual substance of a rational nature. And he adds here that the person is what is most perfect in all of nature. And that this perfection coincides with or flows from the person as having dominion over his acts. Freedom a kind of self-rule, a power to control one's own acts, to direct them in one direction or another. Now, there are a number of similarities between Aquinas and Kant on the question of the person. All of them consider the person 
to be characterized by a kind of freedom, a kind of self-control of having dominion, as Aquinas puts it, or having autonomy, as Kant puts it. So the person as self-controlled rather than simply ruled by something external or something higher is a key point in the discussion of the person for both Kant and Aquinas. Secondly, there is an emphasis upon the individual and indeed upon the incommunicability of personhood. This is especially true in God, right, where there's a Father, Son, and a Holy Spirit, and these are incommunicable, they're separate persons. But even with human beings, each person is an individual person. We don't want to lapse too much into trendy psychology about how we're all different from one another. But there is, in Aquinas' view, a particularly intimate relationship because of the rational nature with God. I mean, Aquinas will argue that whereas all other living substances are generated simply by powers inherent in the matter from the start of the generation. The human soul has to be created directly by God. And so there's a particularly intimate relationship that the human person has with God, a certain kind of dignity, a certain kind of individuality and incommunicability of each person, unrepeatability of persons. The last thing is, and something I've already touched upon here in talking about incommunicability, is that there's a certain dignity. That's explicitly Kant's word. Aquinas uses words like that and speaks of person as what is most perfect in all of nature, right? Somehow an elevated character to the person that the rest of nature doesn't quite reach, that it lacks. Now, these are similarities indeed, but there are also differences which you may have already detected, right? The first one, and one of the most important, is that in Aquinas, there is no dichotomy of nature and person. There is in Kant, remember? This is the world of Newtonian deterministic physics. This is the world of human freedom. In Aquinas, notice that he speaks of the person as an individual substance of a rational nature, right? And he speaks of the person as what is most perfect in all of nature. So the person is the peak of the natural physical world, but the person is not somehow set over against nature the pinnacle of nature, but not in opposition to nature. Very important. So that Aquinas can talk about the human person and human nature simultaneously. He can move back and forth from one to the other. The second thing is that in Aquinas, there is no conception of autonomy, at least not as Kant understands it. We are, for Aquinas, not utterly self-legislating. Aquinas will say that we can know the natural law by the light of our own reason, but ultimately that natural law that binds us in the way that Kant talks about the categorical imperative binding us. That law is a participation in God, in the eternal law, as he calls it. So there is, instead of autonomy versus heteronomy, Aquinas speaks of human persons as ruled rulers, which means we're not fully autonomous. We do rule, we have dominion over our own acts, but we are nonetheless ruled by a higher power, ultimately by God so that there is no conception of the sort of radical autonomy that Kant talks about. And indeed, for Aquinas, and here's where the theological element comes in once again, the greater my participation in God's plan for me, and that means generally in terms of living in accord with divine law and then in terms of where providence points my life, the greater my explicit participation in that, the greater my freedom. So in contrast to Kant, who sees if I were to advert to anything other than my own reason and freedom in articulating the law, I would be heteronymous and therefore out of sorts with myself in some way. Aquinas sees this participation in nature and in God 
as enhancing our freedom, as making us more fully what we're intended to be. So those are two big differences between Aquinas and Kant. Now, let's talk a little bit more at this point about Aquinas' view of freedom. And the teaching that always bothers modern philosophers is started with Scotus, who lived not long after Aquinas, who rejected completely Aquinas' account of freedom. Because Aquinas argues that the will wills the ultimate good, complete happiness, necessarily. This seems to many simply to undermine from the outset the possibility of the freedom of the will or of the human person. Now Aquinas will talk about free choice regarding the means to the ultimate good. We have free choice. We're not determined to this mean rather than that means of achieving the ultimate good. But the will naturally inclines toward goodness, indeed toward infinite goodness and infinite happiness. This ultimate good is an infinite. And the will remains more or less unsatisfied with anything short of that ultimate good. Now, to many moderns, this notion that the will has a kind of natural impulse to it toward this ultimate good seems to undermine its freedom. But it's interesting that for Aquinas, it is this which actually safeguards freedom vis-a-vis -vis this particular deliberation or choice or whatever. And how is that so? Well, it is the will's natural orientation toward this ultimate, infinite good and happiness that leads us in our considering any particular finite good to be able to be not compelled by any particular finite good. Now why is that? Well, any particular finite good is in many respects, no matter how good a good it is, is going to fall short of this ultimate infinite good. So in any encounter with a particular good, we are never determined by it, absolutely. Because there's always a gap between that and this natural orientation of the will toward the ultimate good, the supreme good. So that it is this necessity for Aquinas that paradoxically actually explains how it is that we are free down here. We cannot be compelled by any particular finite good precisely because of the will's natural orientation to be satisfied with nothing short of the ultimate infinite good and happiness. Yves Simone has a very fine book which I recommend to you called Freedom of Choice. And in there, in that book, he makes a very nice contrast between the freedom understood as indetermination or what he wants to call superdetermination. Indetermination sometimes is called a kind of passive indifference of the will, right? that the will can move this way or that. It's not inclined of necessity toward anything, even toward the good. It's sort of equally disposed toward good and evil. And this is said to give us a kind of responsibility for our actions, that the will has this kind of indetermination or passive indifference, as it's sometimes called. And Simone says a number of things about these. This phrase is more his own. These are inherited from other modern philosophers. This is a number of things about this contrast. One of them is that the notion of freedom as indetermination or as indifference, if pushed to its limits, is a rather bizarre notion because it indicates that we see freedom in perplexity, in lack of resolution, in indecision, in weakness of our willing capacity. That is, if the will's freedom seems to be primarily a matter of its being unmoored from any orientation to good or to evil, 
or equally moored to them both. And it's an especially modern and contemporary predicament, right, of finding ourselves in situations of choice where we're flooded by possibilities and seem to be paralyzed by the various possibilities, can't make up our mind one way or another. But this somehow is a sign of our freedom that we can entertain all these different possibilities and be moved in no direction by any of them and ultimately be sort of paralyzed in this way. And Simone's objection to this is that it seems to treat what is one of our, if not the noblest, one of the noblest, second to knowledge perhaps, characteristics of human beings, namely our freedom, as a kind of weakness, as an incapacity rather than a capacity. So he holds for super determination rather than indetermination or indifference to that as the ultimate good. Right? So we have a negative versus a positive conception of the good. And one way to put this is ask the question of what sort of individuals do we actually consider to be most free? I mean, do we consider that sort of person that I mentioned and that all of us, short of perfectly virtuous people, find ourselves in from time to time, especially when we have difficult decisions and a number of possibilities are presented to us? Are we most free, or do we consider someone most free who seems constantly to be entertaining a set of possibilities and to be simply sort of passive before all these possibilities and unable, in a way, to marshal them to any grand design or plan? Is that the sort of person that we imagine to be free, to be in this constant state of conflict? For instance, for Aristotle, someone who wants to be virtuous but is not yet virtuous is a person who is pulled between the good that he knows he ought to do and the habits, the way the inclinations have been formed in certain ways that lead us not to follow that if we're not yet virtuous. Right? So there's this kind of conflict between what we know to be good and what we find pleasant at the moment. Now, is that the model of freedom, this sort of conflict, passivity, endless entertaining of possibilities? Or is the model of freedom someone who is super determined, say by virtue, for example? We talked momentarily there about someone who does not yet possess virtue and is in a state of conflict. But someone who possesses virtue in a sense, although it's possible on any given occasion that he could do something not virtuous, insofar as that person acts in accord with his character, he will act virtuously. Does that mean he's not free? I mean, consider, for example, in this you don't even have to be fully virtuous to appreciate. You don't even have to imagine someone fully virtuous to appreciate this example. But consider someone, a parent, who arrives home from work to find the house in flames and children seemingly trapped in an upstairs bedroom. Now, the person who is captured by the endless array of possibilities there is that person the most free? Or is the person who, because of love for the children, risks life and limb without even thinking to go into the house? There seems to be, if we take this notion that freedom means indetermination, that person who is virtuous in loving his or her children, or at least has a kind of natural impulse to love his or her children and to risk life and limb for them, and simply responds to the situation in the way that seems appropriate. Of course, aware of the risks that are involved at some level, but not allowing those to enter in as possibilities. Gee, maybe I ought to stand out here because I could get burned by going in, right? The, the person who seems to be paralyzed by the possibilities. On this view that freedom is indetermination or indifference, it might seem that person who is paralyzed by the possibilities would be more free at that moment. But if we talk about superdetermination, that is an orientation toward the good, that is in the will, that is of the will by nature, and then is formed through virtue so that we become more and more determined to the good. Is that sort of determinacy, is that contrary to freedom? 
Because right? you might say that someone, a mother who arrived home to find her children upstairs and threatened and rushed in, wasn't really free to do otherwise, right? in some sense. But yet there's a kind of higher freedom involved there, which is living in accord with the good, right? living in accord with that which is more appropriate to our nature. So I think you need to think about those kinds of examples when this notion of indeterminacy and indifference is put forward as the model of freedom. Is it really the free person, or isn't it the case, as Aristotle and Aquinas would insist, that that person who in that moment is sort of caught between saving the kids and saving his or her own neck, that that person really is enslaved by some lower passion and not yet free to do what would be truly appropriate in the circumstance, what would be truly virtuous. So it does seem to me that the more we reflect upon this conception of freedom as indeterminacy and as indifference, although it has on the surface a kind of persuasiveness to it, a sort of palatability to it. Sure, what else could it mean to be free, but to be able to go in lots of different directions? The more you probe that, the more it seems that that's an inadequate conception of freedom. And it treats our freedom not as something noble and elevated, but as something weak and irresolute and paltry in a way, as passive. Now, in the last section here, having given a brief discussion of Kant and Aquinas on the person and on freedom, and then more particularly the peculiarly Thomistic character of this conception of freedom as what I'm borrowing from Yves Simone, the notion of superdetermination rather than indeterminacy or indifference, which this superdetermination follows from the will's necessary orientation to the ultimate good. And it is that, surprisingly to many readers, which actually safeguards our freedom vis-a-vis -vis any particular choice. I want briefly to say something here at the end about perhaps the most important 20th century conception of freedom, and that is the existentialist conception. And to compare that briefly, here we can take Sartre's writings as representative. I mean, Heidegger is perhaps the premier writer, and much of this goes back to writers like Nietzsche and Kierkegaard in the 19th century and Dostoevsky among novelists. But Sartre, especially in his sort of extended essay, Existentialism and the Human Emotions, gives us a fairly clear and straightforward account of the basic tenets of existentialism and what its implications are. We'll talk about two basic teachings here. Much of this, the technical philosophical claim is just this. Existence precedes essence. The second claim is that in our radical freedom, we'll see momentarily how this follows from the first claim here, in our radical freedom we are responsible to and for to make ourselves what we are or who we are. That is to say, if existence precedes essence, and there is no human nature to which we can consult or live in accord with, then the what or the who that we end up being is completely a result of our own free artistic construction. We make ourselves freely to be who and what we are. And we are utterly responsible for this. In fact, Sartre goes so far to comment on this existence preceding essence as to say that at first man is nothing. There's mere existence there, and then the mere fact of existence. And then essence, or what man is, comes out of what each individual makes of his or her life freely. And so we have this kind of radical freedom that cannot be dispensed with or abrogated. And the entire history of religion and ethics for Sartre is really a matter of avoiding this truth of our radical freedom. Right? We've attempted to pass it off on God and say that, well, we consult God, and that's how we know how we ought to be. Or we consult nature, and that's how we know what we ought to be. Or we consult society. And Sartre wants to, having stripped us of all of that, 
There is no essence that God has created. There is no natural essence that can be said to be in accord with nature. And there's nothing that society can determine that would tell us exactly who and what we are. Once we've stripped away all these excuses, as he sees it, to really living freely, we can see that we are, in fact, abandoned to our own freedom. And it is something that we have to make of what we can and what we want. So those are the two basic claims of Sartrean existentialism. And notice as well that this, too, it's a kind of radicalization, a further step down the road from Kant's attempt to carve a niche for human persons distinct from the mechanical necessity of science. That, too, is a way of avoiding, perhaps the premier way in the modern world, of avoiding freedom. So this, too, is a reaction against modern science and an attempt to free us from it. Now, one of the questions that can be raised very quickly about this is whether this really does free us from science. We noted way back at the beginning of these lectures, I guess I can follow Eliot here and say, in my end is my beginning. We noticed way back at the beginning of these lectures that the modern reflection on human nature, the human person, on soul and body, really goes back to Descartes as the founder of modern philosophy and as one of the founders of modern science. And the dilemma we've inherited from Descartes, which I have argued is dramatized in many of the novels of Walker Percy and in others, is that this transcendent ego or self or intellect versus the imminent world of the body. And we said there that one of the inheritance of that is that we have no way of saying with any clarity and confidence how it is that human beings fit into the whole of nature and what our place is. And thereby, if we had that, we might be able to say what the limits are or what the proper relationship of human beings to the rest of nature is. Descartes leaves us somehow set over against nature as its masters, equally its tyrants. Well, doesn't the same difficulty result from existentialism? That is, we seem to be so radically bereft of any place, any link with nature, that our place within it is utterly inexplicable. And so we are, as Walker Percy himself put it in one of his more popular works, lost in the cosmos. We are in existentialism lost in the cosmos more than we are perhaps in any other modern philosophical view. But this has echoes of Descartes, who was very committed to modern science. So it's hard to see how we can escape some of the unwelcome consequences of modern science. That is, that we seem to have set ourselves over against nature with no way of talking about how we are part of nature and what our place is in the natural world. No way at all. So that difficulty seems only to be exacerbated in existentialism. Conversely, it does seem a little bizarre to say that science can really teach us nothing about who and what we are. I mean, this once again seems to be a kind of dualism that leads to a forgetfulness of our animal nature. Right? It would have us be sort of free-floating, self-creating entities. And the animal, the bodily side of our nature seems to get left aside here. And on this, a science that isn't radically reductionistic, a science like Aristotle's, and account of the body like we find in Aquinas, can contribute much and can offer a kind of rapprochement between the account of the human person and science. At least it's there as a possibility to be worked out. Whereas existentialism allows science to say absolutely nothing about what we are as human beings. And that seems just wrong-headed and seems to leave aside our animal nature entirely. We want to say something about how Aquinas would view some of these theses that we've put on the board here. And I want to add that at first, man is nothing. And I think reading these from the perspective of Aquinas, these statements, one can't help but recall the sort of theological context out of which Aquinas works out his view 
of human nature. That is to say, th there's a sense in which it's true for Aquinas that existence precedes essence. I mean, Aquinas will say, when he talks about the creation of human beings, and even the creation of angels, that we are radically dependent in being upon the creative activity of God, and upon God's providential holding us in to being at every moment. And so, in a sense, that created existence is prior to our nature as human beings. And you could say, in that sense, that without a recognition of that dependence in being, that created act of God, that dependence in being of every existing thing, and especially of the human person, whom we've argued has an especially intimate relationship to God, given that the human intellectual soul has to be created directly by God and is not simply part of the natural process of generation. Given all of that, if we were to deny this, we might indeed come to think that man is absolutely nothing. Right? And Sartre himself, following Dostoevsky and Nietzsche on this, wants to argue that if there is no God, all things are possible. Right? If there is no God, there is no natural order. There is no nature to be known and to be lived in accord with. And one thing that we could see here in this view, as I said, there's something true about existence preceding essence, and there's something true about it first man being nothing. There's something true about the whole of the created order at first being nothing. Right? Creation is ex nihilo. There is no pre-existing stuff out of which God creates things. It's from nothing on Aquinas' view of this. And so there is a certain element of truth in these statements, but the coloring and interpretation that Sartre gives to them is the kind of coloring and interpretation that one would expect to be given to them in a world where God has been lost, where the ultimate ground of our created being has been claimed to be vanished or claimed to have vanished or to have died in Nietzsche's terms, or as Aquinas would say, just to have been forgotten and rebuked, neglected by modern philosophy. And Walker Percy touches upon this in many of his novels, this seeing through to the nothingness of the self, finally, which is what the 20th century and its reflection on the human person has really brought about in philosophy. The seeing through to the nothingness of human nature is, in a way, a consequence of the rejection of that classical conception of human nature and of the view in Aquinas of it as rooted in a gift of being from a creator God, so that we can say that these things, in fact, would be the natural result of the rejection of the framework that we've seen developed in Aristotle and especially in Aquinas. And that leads us back to a final word that I want to make about the notion of the self in Aquinas. I mean, we've seen that the ego, as it is in modernity, or as Aquinas just wants to say it, the intellect, the center of conscious awareness in a way, that the intellect for Aquinas is nothing until it knows other things. And so the intellect, as it were, has to be related to, wedded to the world, and ultimately to the source of that world, which is God, in order to be anything at all. So this seeing through in existentialism and in other branches of modern philosophy to the nothingness of the self is, in a way, the natural consequence of Descartes and others attempting to talk about the ego as having a kind of direct awareness of itself, as constituting itself before it encounters the world. Remember that for Aquinas, the intellect is in act, and that means we only really have an ego, a self, in a sense, when we are knowing other things. And we recognize that when we have that concomitant awareness of ourselves as knowing. Not only do we know things, but we know that we know. 
And that means that this kind of private self, whether it be conceived primarily as an intellect or as a will, where it seems to be in Sartre, that that private ego, intellect and or will, that the seeing through to the absolute nothingness of that is the natural result of trying to invest everything in this kind of private, isolated ego. Right? That this is the nothingness of human beings is the natural result of that. And it is sort of a lesson from the perspective of Aquinas that his view of the relationship of the intellect to things and the dependence of the entire human person on the creative activity and being created being offered to us by God, that this is the proper context to resurrect these things. Right? So that we don't start out from the outset with a view that is likely to lead to the nothingness of human beings. And so then finally, at the end here, just as we saw with the question of human knowledge and the question of the separability and incorruptibility of the intellect with the resurrection of the body, which Aquinas brings in from revealed truth, so too here, when we talk about both an Aristotelian conception of knowledge as knowledge of the other, being identical with the other through acts of knowledge, and in Aquinas' view of the dependence of all created things upon the created power of God, we can see here the way Aquinas will advert to properly theological teachings and revealed teachings in order to correct, supplement, resolve difficulties that philosophy runs into if it makes wrong starts or if it finally cannot fulfill its own desire, its own projects. And so we find here then two very compelling examples, I think, of the fundamental Thomistic claim about the relationship between grace and nature, that grace and faith perfect and don't destroy nature, but perfect and elevate it. And this is a final testimony to the relationship of faith and reason in Aquinas as it works out in his conception of human nature. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.